This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Ephraim Matos, and if that name sounds familiar... It's probably because you've been listening to the show for a while because he is a podcast alum. He appeared on episode 197. So guys, if you have not checked that out, that link will be in the show notes. You should definitely check that out because a lot of his story and a lot of his thoughts on some very important things and his books and all that, we talked about in that episode. So we're not going to deal with that on this one. But if you need an introduction to whoever Matos is, he is a retired Navy SEAL. He's also the founder of Stronghold Rescue and Relief. So this is a humanitarian organization that protects and cares for families in conflict zones. They do incredible, incredible work, and they're able to do this with small teams of kind of highly and specially skilled former special ops members. And what they do is they administer emergency aid when necessary. Uh, They will actually work with local authorities to perform these high-risk, life-saving rescue operations. They do a lot of great work, and we're going to get into some of that work here in this podcast. He's also the author of the book City of Death, Humanitarian warriors in the battle of Mosul. And that was one that we talked about a lot in episode 197. Guys, this episode is really, really good because it's always good to talk to my buddy Ephraim, but we're going to talk about, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouse situation in Kenosha because he's actually from Kenosha. We're going to talk about his thoughts on Afghanistan. I wanted to talk to him about Afghanistan, you know, whenever we were pulling out and he just really wanted to gather his thoughts. So he finally has, has kind of done that and he's kind of coalesced it all into a narrative that that he likes in terms of what's going on in, in what's going on in Afghanistan and what happened when we pulled out. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Burma. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Haiti right now. So if you're curious about what's going on with these 17 Christian missionaries that were kidnapped in Haiti, what's going on with them. He's got an inside look on all those things, but guys, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ephraim Matos, welcome back to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey brother, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. I'm glad to talk to you. We have a lot of ground that we're going to cover today, but we were just talking off air about the situation going on in Waukesha. I mean, this is right in the middle. And guys, if you're listening to this, we're recording this on Monday. And so this just really happened within the last 24 hours. We don't have all the details. So by the time you're listening to this, the details may have changed. But I I didn't know this, but you're actually in Waukesha right now. So I mean, it's not like you're there on the ground helping investigate it or anything like that, but kind of take us through that. I mean, what are you doing there and kind of what's the vibe there right now in the city? Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm actually here in Waukesha County uh, visiting family for Thanksgiving. And yeah, I saw last night, right, right. As I was going to bed that, you know, some, uh, some maniac had, had driven his vehicle through a, through a crowd of people uh, in Waukesha, uh, which is, you know, maybe a mile and a half up the road from where I'm sitting right now uh, recording this. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, Wisconsin, the people of Wisconsin, you know, we just, we just went through the, uh, the Jacob Blake thing and then the Rittenhouse thing. And now this thing, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty unfortunate that, you know, a lot of this stuff hits very close to home in like the middle of kind of rural Wisconsin. This isn't, you know, this is not, this is not a heavily populated, um, you know, uh, place. This is just regular, uh, regular suburban people, you know, having to deal with these, with these, um, with these incidents. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's, it's, uh, it's awful. And, um, yeah, man, you know, it's, it's, it's rough. Obviously we still don't know exactly who, uh, who, who the guy was or what his motives were. I believe they have, they have a suspect in custody, but you know, we don't have enough details yet to know why he did what he did. All that we know at this point was that he was out on bail for $500, uh, for a bail that the, um, that the judge had originally said at ten thousand uh, dollars, 
Um, so there was clearly some 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 failings in our in our in our justice system. Um, but you know, we'll wait for more for, for more information to come out. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not involved at all in the in the investigation or anything like that. I'm just I'm just here visiting uh, visiting my folks. Well, even just to ask you about something that's related to this, and this gets into criminal justice reform and all these different things, but the person they have in custody, which is for all intents and purposes, the the person that did this, we don't know why, but this person has a rap sheet a mile long. I mean, this person has constantly been in trouble, in felony trouble and all these other aggravated assaults and different things. If you look at this person's Facebook account, which I I guess has been taken down now, this person was like a rapper as well. And so a lot of their uh, lyrical content was going into a lot of the Black Lives Matter territory. This person expressed a tremendous uh, disdain over, you know, what happened to Jacob Blake and what's happening with Kyle Rittenhouse and all those different things. And just kind of the, the racial undertones of what's happening in the country. It seems like to me, again, painting with a broad brush because we don't know enough. I'm just painting with a broad brush here for anyone that's going to clip this and make, you know, get mad at me later. It seems like almost if you have someone that has a predisposition in their brain for violent crimes, that they can be radicalized, radicalized pretty easily with this narrative in this country where if you were born and you look a certain way, that this country is not for you and the country is actively trying to hurt you or be against you. Do you feel like that's something that's going to continue as, as we move forward? Do you feel like the pendulum is going to swing back at all? Um, well, you know, it's it's very interesting to kind of to kind of look at this situation because, you know, you are absolutely correct. Um, unfortunately, there's the there are these ideologies that are being that are being taught to people that you know we're supposed to judge each other based on the color of your skin. And I, I know last night when when we found out about this um, about this tragedy in Waukesha, as a family, we were going, you know, we were sitting around talking about it and we were like, okay, is it a, we're, you know, debating, is it a, is it a, uh, is it, is it a white supremacist? You know, like what happened in Virginia, you know, the guy who drove his, drove his vehicle into a crowd of, uh, uh, BLM folks, or, you know, is this, uh, is this a BLM person who's mad about the Rittenhouse trial or is it just, you know, a crazy person? But the fact that that, that, that we even considered or even had to talk about the, you know, what's the, what's the race or the motivation of the person really goes to show kind of where we're at as a nation. Uh, and it's, it's, it's horrible and it's sad, um, that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to look at things in terms of race and whatnot when we should, when we absolutely should not be, but that's sort of what's been thrust upon us by the, by the media and, and, uh, by, you know, recent events and everything. Um, I, I think that people are becoming aware of it, but I think that people are also sick of it. Right. Um, so, you know, my family, I come from a, you know, just suburban lower middle-class family. Uh, everybody's blue collar. Um, we just, we just work and that's, that's, that's what, that's what my, that's what my family does. Right. Just normal people don't want to bother anybody else also want to be left alone. And I saw, so I say all that because I think that, you know, our, my family and the neighborhood that I'm from in Waukesha, like we're sort of a microcosm, I think, of, of the country in a way um, where people are, are tired of making everything racialized. We're all tired of making it racialized. It doesn't need to be racialized. Um, you know, we definitely need to look at and there are there are repercussions from past uh, sins in the in the history of our nation. Of course, nobody's denying that. But to sit there and make that the focal point of everything that we're doing, I think, is now counterproductive at this point. So, to answer your question, will the pendulum swing? Um, I think that the you know the the results of the uh, of the elections in, in New Jersey, where we uh, where where a uh, um, a conservative almost won. Um, and then in um, Virginia, where a conservative did win, you know, that's, you know, that's a, uh, 
that that's that's a good sign i think that that people are tired of the, the of racializing everything and this doesn't have to be democrat versus republican i i don't think that, to be very clear um most of the people i think who are who are democrats i don't think that they follow this crazy ideology i think it's just the far left it's like these far left racial radicals who are causing these problems and have sort of hijacked the democrat party unfortunately um and are sort of giving everybody a bad name when I think I think the majority, I think probably 95 percent of people in the Democrat Party, for example, uh, and on the left are not, you know, they, they don't support all this. And, I, and that's that's the optimistic side of me. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, the midterm elections here in about a year will will be a, um, a very interesting litmus test in sort of the direction that the country wants to go. So that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think it'll be very telling, and I think a lot of people as well. They don't like being called something that they're not, uh, and to to accuse someone of racism without any evidence, right? Without any evidentiary basis right. for that, that's one of the most horrific things that you could claim about a person, except for maybe that they're a pedophile or that they've raped someone or something like that. That is such yep. a horrific accusation to make, and when everything's racist, nothing is racist, and so I feel like exactly. we're, we're getting into a lot of that. So the midterm elections will be a little bit of an idea as to kind of what that looks like, because obviously people are very concerned about what's going on in the school systems with critical race theory. People on the left are saying, what are you talking about? There's no class called uh, critical race theory 101. Now, obviously, they're playing some semantic games, but especially for parents, when their little kid, their seven or eight year old comes home and says, mommy, why am I bad? Well, what do you mean, sweetheart? Because I was born white. We were, we were talking about how I was born white. And, and just to, just to be real here, like I'm a parent of a one and a half year old, you know, we're thinking about what is his education going to look like? We have another baby boy on the way. The thing about these kids is a good parent will let them know about the past sins perpetrated by this country, but they will also give them a very good idea as to kind of what's going on on the ground now. You have these people immediately after, which we're going to get into Kyle Rittenhouse situation here in just a second. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but they, they immediately, the narrative whenever he was acquitted on all charges was that, well, if he had been black or brown, that this would have never happened. This couldn't possibly have happened if it had been that way. But to, to describe that and, and talk about this vagary, which is systemic racism and not give any evidence for it, not give me a single law on the books today that is racist in intent, not just racist in outcome or something like that. People don't really want to go there anymore. And we are seeing people kind of push back. But again, if you push back against that narrative, you are inherently a racist. So uh, I'm encouraging parents all over the place to be like, let them call you a racist. They're only calling you a racist because they're scared of your opinion. Just go mm -hmm. ahead and move forward. Do what's best for you and for your family. But let's go ahead and get into the Kyle Rittenhouse situation because I didn't know this until about a week ago that you grew up in Kenosha. I mean, this is this is your area. This is your hometown. And that situation has hit that community very, very hard. It started with Jacob Blake. It started with a guy who had allegedly digitally raped his, his girlfriend or, or ex-wife or whatever. Uh, he was getting into a car with her children. He had a restraining order that he had violated. The police begged him to stop what he was doing so they could take him to custody and get him away from this woman. He doesn't do so. He reaches into a car again with kids inside of it. He's grabbing for a knife and then he's shot by police. He wasn't killed, which is everyone just assumes this guy was killed because that fits the narrative of black man shot by white police officers and killed, but it doesn't really fit that. So obviously just the situation with Jacob Blake was enough to rock that community. Mm -hmm. Then you have Kyle Rittenhouse who was going and, you know, if you want to debate whether or not he should have been there, that wasn't what he was on trial for, but he goes there and there's a lot that's been made about what happened on the ground with Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, he shoots three people in self-defense, uh, killing two of them. And it's a lot. It's a lot to take in for any city, but especially a small city. So I teed it up about as best as I could for you because I want you to be able to just kind of flow in whatever direction you want to about Jacob Blake, Kyle Rittenhouse or Kenosha writ large. So go and give me your thoughts on that whole situation. 
Yeah, absolutely. So before, before I jump into that, I want to kind of respond to one of the things you were talking about, you know, where if you push back against some of these these crazy leftist ideologies, you're considered a racist. Um, you know, what, what I what I tell people whenever they're, you know, when I have a conversation one on one with somebody is I say, listen, like I, I literally have a there's there's a video of me getting shot, uh, helping to rescue a an Arab foreign female um, <laughs> Muslim uh, you know, child. And, you know, people still call me racist even after that. So my point is there's nothing that you can do right. and, you know, to, 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 to make them sort of change their opinion about you, because it doesn't matter. Like my entire life, um, you know, I run you know, stronghold rescue and relief or, you know, an NGO, we go around the world and help people. Um, and we bring in veterans and we go to, we go to all kinds of places and we help these folks overseas. And, you know, there's, there, it doesn't really matter what you do. They're still going to call you a racist simply because you disagree with them. And so, um, I guess I, I just want to throw that out there to anybody who's afraid of being called a racist. Like they call me a racist and I have my, my entire life has been dedicated to helping people of all colors and religions and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so if, if they're going to, if they're going to attack me, about it, they're still, they're going to attack you about it. So sure. don't um, so don't let that stop you from doing the right thing. Um, that was just I wanted to throw that little caveat out there. Um, now, yeah, with Kenosha, so I yeah I grew up in Kenosha um, and for the first few years that I was in elementary school, and then I lived uh, most of my childhood was in was in uh, Milwaukee proper. Um, but yeah, my first memories of life are in Kenosha. It's a um, it's a nice little um, town right on Lake Michigan. And, you know, I, I remember a, a year ago when when the when the riots were breaking out after um, Jacob Blake w- was shot after he was, you know, attempting to get into a vehicle and, you know, to, and all the stuff that you that you had mentioned. You know, I, I just remember um, I, I, I messaged some of my friends, some of my childhood friends who still live there. One of them in particular, um, she has uh, she has two kids. And uh, I think her husband was at work or something, but I was saying, Hey, like, are you guys fine? Are you okay? Are you safe? Do you need me to come down there and like get you guys out of there? Do you need a safe place to stay? You can come up here. Um, you know, no issues, but she was, she said like, Hey, we're fine. But she's like, we are inside, uh, inside the house with our doors locked sort of in the internal part of the house. We're not in the outer rooms. And I just remember, and they're just in a residential area. Right. And so I remember thinking, you know, when, when there's a peaceful protest, when there's actually a truly a peaceful protest, Right. Uh, people go out on their porch and they watch whether they agree or disagree, right? People go out on your porch and you watch. That's what you do. It's like when there's a parade going down the street, you go outside and you take pictures and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and, you know, so, but the fact that people are cowering in their homes, afraid, protecting their children, uh, that says everything that you need to know about about what that what that whole situation was. And so, you know, in the middle of that, you had, you know, Cal Rittenhouse, he shows up and, and for me, I think there's absolutely no no issue with him being there, right? I think there's a, I think there's a difference between like legality and morality sometimes, and I think that right now our our system is starting to, um, you know, make things that are moral. It's starting to make them illegal, right? Um, so, for example, is there anything morally wrong in the eyes of God uh, for a 17 year old uh, young man to carry a uh, carry a rifle? and a medical kit and go into harm's way to try to help people and protect them and protect businesses. Is there, does, does God have any problem with that? No, absolutely. So at that point, 
I really don't care too much about if there was technically some little dumb law, like, oh, you cross state lines or, you know, whatever. I, I honestly, I honestly couldn't care less at that point um, because he was doing the right thing. He was there to protect people. There's video of him earlier in the night um, that, that clip's been played ad nauseum where he says, hey, I'm here to, 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 um, to provide medical care and we're here to prevent these, prevent these, uh, these businesses from being destroyed. And so I look at that. And I go, you know, like there's there's not much of a difference. Or let, let me let me reword that. There's um, uh, imagine for two seconds. Imagine for two seconds that a group of you know angry angry Arab Muslims went through Kenosha and just started burning all the cars. Uh, started uh, burning down people's businesses. Went to car lots and destroyed millions of dollars worth of property, all while screaming Allahu Akbar. Right. We would every single one of us, we would look at that and we would go, that's terrorism, terrorism, plain and simple, done. End of story. That's that's an act of terrorism. We would have the FBI HRT teams out there. We'd have ATF. We'd have DEA. We have everybody who could possibly get involved would, would be hunting these people down and preventing them from destroying cities. You don't get to destroy cities. That's not a thing. Right. So what's the difference between, you know, an 18 year old, you know, soldier going to Iraq to protect people? versus a 17-year-old guy from Indiana or Illinois who went up to Kenosha to protect people. You know, for me, I don't, I don't see there being much of a difference whatsoever on, on a moral level. I understand legally and, you know, I understand. But um, on a moral level, I don't think that he didn't do anything wrong. Um, and, you know, having watched the having watched a lot of the trial and have, again, having friends that are in, in Kenosha and, um, you know, my, my first memories of life are in Kenosha. Um, having watched all that and then the, the verdict being read out and, you know, he was acquitted of all five charges, which is good, you know, and then I, I started hearing a lot of people say, Oh, justice was done. Justice was served because, you know, he was acquitted of all five charges. And my, my, my honest thought is no justice was not served. Justice, if justice had been done, he never would have been brought to trial in the first place. Right. The prosecutor, whoever brought that trial, to, uh, whoever brought that case to a trial, uh, to, a, to a jury trial, you know, th- that should have never even happened in the first place. And the fact that that was that that kid was even on trial for uh, protecting himself. And there's there's, you know, does what dozens of <laughs> different videos showing that he did absolutely nothing wrong. The fact that he was even brought to trial in the first place to potentially go to prison for the rest of his life with robbers and murderers and rapists and, and, and gangsters, you know, that is, is not justice. So until that prosecutor is fired, until uh, that entire system is cleaned up, until we no longer have people being tried for crimes that they obviously did not commit, then justice hasn't been done. Um, that kid, you know, should have gone to the police you know, or, uh, right now, she sh- all, all that should have happened is he should have made his statement. They probably should have met with him two or three different times, confirming his statements, gathering whatever evidence they needed to from all the videos, and then said, hey, kid, you didn't do anything wrong. And the prosecutor should have, you know, sat down, had a conversation with him, and been like, hey, you, did, you, didn't, you didn't do anything. Um, you know, go, go live your life in peace. Um, but that's not what happened. This kid was dragged out uh, on, on national TV, um, called, a, called a racist, called a terrorist, called a vigilante called all these things mm-hmm. and he did absolutely nothing wrong. He did absolutely nothing wrong morally. Now, again, I'm not sure if there's some technical little legal thing he may have done or not done. Um, but as far as morally, he didn't do anything wrong. And I think it's, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying uh, to look at that and go, 
man, like, I don't, you know, I, if, if I'm in a situation where someone's trying to kill me, you know, like, dude, I, I don't even know, like, if, if, if I defend myself, am I, am I going to go to prison? Am I going to go to prison? Ephraim, that, that's what seemed to be more so on trial here. And that's what had a lot of people worried. A lot of people like me worried, which is, can somebody defend themselves? Can they stand their ground and defend themselves? Because that's what was essentially uh, on trial here. And the thing about a lot of the people that are like, well, he shouldn't have been there. Those people don't want to answer the question, should the rioters have been there? Because then right. it's like, well, why are you calling them rioters? Because they were burning things and breaking things, kind of like what rioters do. Protecting yeah, like, children. Yeah. Yeah. Like definitionally, that's what these people are. But I, I feel like Ephraim, I feel like the media is doing a tremendous amount of gaslighting right now and it's working with a lot of the people because the the amount of messages that I saw people put out on Facebook or on Twitter about, you know, had, you know, this person had Kyle uh, Rittenhouse been black or brown, how he wouldn't, you know, he would be going down right now or the police would have just shot him as he was walking up to them if he had been of a different color, all these different things. But I felt like the media's behavior here was absolutely egregious with this situation. And I believe that Kyle Rittenhouse is going to be a very, very rich man in short order because if that other Covington Catholic <laughs> kid got like a quarter of a billion dollars, all he did was wear a hat and smile in the face of a guy that was basically verbally accosting him. And, you know, this is way different for Kyle Rittenhouse. He could be the first billionaire. Uh, you know, he could be a billionaire before he's 20 years old. But the thing that I feel like is happening, what I want to ask you about in terms of the situation before we move on to all the other stuff is it seems like it's narrative versus truth. And one Mm -hmm. side wants to maintain the narrative and one side is looking for truth because the dominant force inside of media is left wing liberal media. The the Mm -hmm. minority force is right wing media. So if right wing media says something wrong, the entire weight of of mainstream media, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, Vox, BuzzFeed, whatever, they're going to come down on those conservative voices, right? So it's Mm -hmm. like they have to value and put a premium on truth. Whereas if you're MSNBC, you can immediately come out and just trumpet the narrative. The judge was a racist. Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist. This entire situation is about race, even though the only people involved are four white people, Kyle Rittenhouse and the three white people that he shot. It's like, oh, is he racist adjacent because he shot people that support Black Lives Matter? But talk to me a little bit about the behavior of the media and kind of what that's done to even further divide the country that's already so divided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the media narrative and them just jumping to conclusions is is so it's it's just so wrong. And the the fact that they are allowed to just lie, blatantly lie about stuff that every, again, like you use the word, you use the term gaslighting. There's there's no other word for it. You know, it is gaslighting. You're you're saying something that is obviously not true, and you're calling everybody else crazy when they when they call out the fact that you're lying. You know, um, and I think I think that. Um, you know, people just have to, people have to stop being so emotional about things and taking the time to wait for, fa- wait for the facts to come out and be interested in the truth, right? It's like that old, uh, the, the, the biblical adage, you know, the truth will make you free, right? And when you find truth, you find freedom. And right now our, we are refusing to see truth as a society and therefore our liberties are slowly but surely being corroded away. And, um, I think that I think that you know we're, this is this this battle is just now beginning, and I, I don't mean physical battle. I just mean uh, a battle of battle of ideologies. We've we've only um, you know this this book is not even close to being finished, right? This is just the opening crescendo of what's going to be uh, really the the battle for the soul of the nation, really over the next you know ten fifteen years. Uh, and right now, uh, on you know people who are people who are moral and logical. 
um, and, you know, sort of middle class just folks, unfortunately, we're losing because, you know, the reality is like, we don't want to fight this war. Like, right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like, I don't want to spend my time arguing about like racism. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I want to spend my life being constructive. You know, there's, you know, middle-class folks here in Waukesha, Wisconsin, right. They are, um, you know, they're, they're focused on putting food on the table and they're focused on, you know, working hard. And, you know, the, the, the folks that were out at the, at that parade, they're, they're doing a Christmas parade and that's just what they're, they're just trying to live their lives. And, you know, all of this stuff becoming racialized and, and, and becoming so polarizing, I think, I think people are fed up with it, but, but I think, I think we don't, we don't necessarily want to jump into the middle of it because it's like, just leave us alone. Right. But eventually I kind of look at it like this. It's kind of like the U S in the 1930s, right? It's the United States of America in the 1930s. We see all this crazy stuff going on. We see Europe falling. We see, uh, all the, 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 the wars going on between China and Japan. We want nothing to do with it. We're like, Hey, let's just, because we're the good guys. We're like, no, I don't want to fight. I don't want to go kill anybody. I don't want to take any territory. I have no aspirations for that. I just want to be left alone and live my life. Right. And that's, that's what America was doing. But eventually we got dragged into it. And when we, and then when that happened, when we got dragged into it, it's like, okay, cool. All gears ahead. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to wipe these people out. We're going to wipe out the Nazis and we're going to wipe out the Japanese army and all that stuff. Right. And I think that something I hope, I think, and I hope that something similar will happen with, uh, with, with our country now internally, um, all this crazy stuff is going on. Uh, you know, the fact, again, the fact that Rittenhouse was even brought to trial, all the riots and the looting, and then think about all of the secondary and tertiary effects of the fact that the police had to stop policing the community and had to go guard, you know, the, the, the like the Capitol buildings of all the different, um, of all the different cities that were under attack. Right. Um, think about all the rapes and murders and robbing and looting and all the other things that happened that the police simply were not even able to respond to. Right. So all this stuff is going on and it seems all chaotic and crazy. And we find ourselves on the sidelines uh, as, you know, as conservatives. And um, I think what will eventually happen is sort of, I, I don't know what it, I don't know what it is or w- what it will be. And I hope it, I hope this never happens, but it's like, we'll probably have some sort of a Pearl Harbor moment where we're going like, all right, enough is enough. And I hope that COVID and watching all these authoritarian lockdowns and all this nonsensical crap that's coming from the federal government, I hope that this is waking people up. I hope this was our um, Pearl Harbor moment where we're like, hey, okay, Roger that. We're in this fight. We're in it to the end. We're going to win and we're going to take our country back. And that's, that's what I think is happening right now. I think Virginia was a good um, litmus test of that. And I think we're going to see a lot more in 2022, especially in these upcoming primaries. Hey guys, quick aside, I want to introduce you all to an amazing Christian-owned, family-owned, veteran-owned business that is a tremendous supporter of Undaunted Life, and that's Stevenson Knives. So guys, don't fast forward. I promise you're going to want to listen to this. They have a special deal just for our listeners. So Stevenson Knives sells knives and sheaths that are handmade in the United States of America by this family. It's an awesome group of people. These knives come with a lifetime warranty. They're awesome. They're like functioning works of art. And here's the thing. A lot of people that do ads, they don't actually own the products. I own, personally, two Stevenson knives, and these, these things are amazing, but I actually want to highlight this one for you. This is their Harley-Davidson Alabama Hunter. So if you're not actually watching this on YouTube, you, you should be, but also if you're just listening to it, you can check this out on our Instagram page. But this knife 
was forged using a canister Damascus technique that actually combines a Harley Davidson sprocket and steel powder. So it is just absolutely amazing. There's this hand file work along the spine. If you can see that, uh, the handle is this orange and poly orange polyester and this black pearl thing on the handle. It's just absolutely amazing. The the sheath itself is hand stitched and smells like leather. Smells like cowboy boots. It's just amazing. And here's the thing with this knife. I would use this knife as a hunting knife because I'm the type of guy that if if it's a tool and, it, and if I own it and if I need it, then I'm going to use it. Okay. So, and I will 100% be passing these knives down to my boys. The thing about this company is they're constantly testing new steels for durability and edge retention. I know all you knife guys out there, you want your edge retention. And they're doing this by using these knives with professional outfitters and United States military special forces units. And these guys are using them every day and they're constantly testing testing it so you know it's going to be high quality. The Stevenson Knives family is also super, super involved with charities for children, veterans, and conservation, so you know that your money is going to a good place. So, for that hard-to-buy-for person in your life, how about an awesome handmade knife? Okay, these knives will make a perfect Christmas gift. I've already got one for a special guy in my life. These knives are gorgeous. I love them. I'm sure you will as well. Right now, you will get 10% off your order if you tell them that you heard about Stevenson Knives on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. So if you order online, when you're checking out and you're doing your billing, there's a little section to the right that says order notes, and that's where you'll mention Undaunted Life. So guys, head on over to stevensonknives.com or call 863-528-9633. That's Stevenson with a PH knives, S T E P H E N S O N K N I V E S dot com or 863 528 9633. Stevenson knives and get 10% off if you mention Undaunted Life. The link will be in the show notes. Now, let's get back into it. Right. When you said Pearl Harbor moment, it reminded me of a moment when I was talking to our, you know, mutual buddy, Mike Ritland, uh, about the situation that was happening. And he and I were talking about Afghanistan, which I'll ask you about here in a second. But, you know, I, I straight up asked him, I said, let's say there is another 9-11, I think is what I, yeah, I use, but it could be 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. Do you think that the world would come together or the Americans would come together like we did on 9-12 of 2001? And he said, absolutely, yes. And I just got to say, since that moment, I've disagreed with him and I've said it I a disagree lot, but well. I, just, yeah. I, I don't know that that's what's going to happen because we are so divided and it's kind of overwrought. Everyone's like, we're more divided divided than we've ever been. We're not having a civil war. Let's pretend mm -hmm. as if that's way more divided where you are willing to shoot, you know, a, right. a little ball bullet at your brother who's happening, who happens to fight for the other side in this war. We're not more divided when, than ever, but it does seem that way. Social mm -hmm. media is doing that to us. And I think, um, you know, this is when you kind of get into conspiracy theory land or just, it could be legitimate, who knows, but you know, you have the United States of America. We have two enormous oceans on either side of us. It's going to be really hard for our uh, people that hate us to attack us. And so why not? They, why don't they just try to rot us from the inside out? And so you talk about people, you know, with the Soviets, old Soviet area, even but uh, current current people within Iran or China or Russia, they're trying to foment this discontent uh, with all the people inside the country because you don't need to shoot bullets at us if we're going to shoot each other anyway. So it's like, hey, we're just going to basically spark the fire and let you guys deal with the flames. And the problem is, is most people are buying right into whatever narrative they're buying into whatever rage is on their side, and it's not getting any better. But we can sit here and wax poetic about that all day long, but I, I'm really anxious to actually get your thoughts on the situation going on in Afghanistan uh, mm -hmm. because you were one of the first people that I reached out to uh, during that week whenever the United States pulled out and the Taliban basically marched right in. Um, and it, it's it's a major issue, right? Um, it's, it's an issue that 
unfortunately was on Americans' minds for about a week and a half, and then they moved on with their regularly scheduled programming and got outraged about something you know Trump said in a in a media interview, or outraged about this, that, or the other thing, or their Netflix account got locked out for twenty minutes and they couldn't watch their favorite show. No one's talking about Afghanistan anymore which is egregious. But I want to go right back to your initial thoughts. I did that series called Botching Afghanistan. I talked to a lot of people and got their initial thoughts on the pullout and kind of what you thought was happening. But I just want to kind of give you some space right now to describe what you think about our actions as a country, pulling out of the country when we did. But also, let's go ahead and get into some of the things that you've done, the things that you are able to talk about to help get some of those people out that were were left in the crossfire literally once the United States pulled out and created the vacuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, my personal experience in Afghanistan, I was there in summer of 2014. It was actually the same summer that ISIS was sweeping across um, uh, Iraq. And I was, I was in Afghanistan right during the middle of uh, retrograde. Um, so instead of having a six month deployment, we had a four month deployment because literally in the middle of the deployment, that was when, um, you know, the, uh, the powers that be decided to send everybody home Um I, I was gone uh, to sort of backfill some of the guys that had bu- that had bumped into Iraq um, to call in the airstrikes on ISIS. Um, but when when my platoon left the base that they were at, they literally just hopped in helicopters in the middle of the night, set stuff on fire, and just flew out without without any warning and left the Afghans there. Um, this was back in 2014, and of course the Afghans were not even remotely uh, capable of of truly being able to defend themselves. Um, without any kind of American support, so that entire area fell. So this is this has been slowly happening. The um, the, the the dam has slowly been breaking over the last you know five six seven years, and you know th- this precipitous pullout was the final. The dam finally broke, and everything and all the water rushed through. Right, the Taliban just took over the entire country. But it's been a long time in the making. Um, but yeah, but during dur- when, when when that whole thing when that whole thing kicked off. Um, yeah, I was immediately, of course, my, my phone immediately started blowing up and I, you know, I don't know anybody in Afghanistan. I, I was there, like I said, for three months in 2014. Um, and yes, we got to, you know, do a bunch of fighting and whatnot, but you know, I, I, I wasn't like an Intel guy at the time, so I didn't really know anybody. Um, I was just a shooter. Um, but you know, with, with stronghold rescue and relief, the, the NGO that I run, we of course started getting a lot of people asking us for help. So I just immediately started pulling all of my contacts and luckily we have the resources and we have the personnel now to, to really be able to kind of get into those places and make stuff happen. Um, so while, while all this stuff was falling apart, so I kind of, I kind of watched the airport. So I was actually aware of what was going on in Afghanistan and heavily involved in it before it ever hit the news. It was probably about a week, week and a half prior to it all actually being on the news. Um, I was already on the phone like 16 hours a day, uh, texting and calling and talking to 17 people at once and people trying to get uh, extracted and all kinds of stuff. Um, and, you know, so so while all that was going on, uh, and I, I saw that eventually um, – we gave up the entire country except for Kabul airport, which is a very small, relatively small space. Um, I immediately, I immediately looked at that and I thought, you want to know what, like this place is a, either going to get overrun or B we're going to be gone in about 10 days. And then there's nobody like a tons of tons of people are going to get left behind. Right. So there's nobody to help. So what we immediately started doing, uh, me and my guys uh, with stronghold, we immediately started looking for routes out of the country. We started looking for ways to sm- start smuggling people um, through, into border countries, without, um, you know, just basically just to get the heck out of there while, while, while we could. 
Um, and so what we did was we actually created sort of a, an Intel um, network of people, uh, people who are on our payroll, Afghans who are now on our payroll, and we set up safe houses and drivers and uh, passwords and all this stuff. I mean, it's very ad hoc, kind of thrown together. Um, but basically, we set up these rat lines so we can smuggle families out of the country who really, really need to get out of the country. And the the type of stuff that we that we do, we're not moving thousands of people. We're not moving, you know, um, uh, airplane loads of people. It's not buses full of people. It's one family at a time, and it's people who are no kidding going to get a bullet in the head if they're not out of there. Um, so we've actually, and we've actually kind of slowed down the amount of people that we're moving out because it's also very expensive. Um, we've got a lot of people on the ground that need to get paid and, you know, making sure that, um, you know, we're able to, you know, fuel and vehicles. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. It's not just a simple get on the phone and, um, you know, uh, get people out. Um, so yeah, so basically we have, we have several routes out of the country and right now we're still, um, on occasion we'll get, um, you know, one family here, one family there, specific cases. Um, but the, the, the situation right now, um, is actually, it's actually kind of interesting. It seems to be, how do I, how do I word this? It's, I'm, I'm trying to word this properly. It doesn't seem like I, like the Taliban is going door to door, killing everybody. Um, it seems to be that they, I think that that will happen. I think that that's going to come, but I think right now they're actually being relatively restrained and I'm not sure why that is. I'm still, obviously I don't trust them for, you know, for two seconds, but it's, it's very interesting to kind of watch. I'm observing sort of what their, um, what their tactics are, what they're doing. Cause again, like I'm in direct contact with people who are on the ground, uh, in the country and on the border regions and everything. And they're reporting everything that they're seeing directly firsthand to me. And I'm kind of looking at the situation and it's kind of interesting. The, the, you know, the Taliban aren't necessarily, they're not ISIS, right? So we, when we think of terrorists, we think of ISIS and it's not ISIS. In fact, the Taliban and ISIS are like fighting. There's been a, bu- a bunch of killings and a bunch of bombs that have gone off. Most of the violence that's going on is actually between the Taliban and ISIS K at the moment. Um, but it's still extremely dangerous. They are, I think, I think, I think what the Taliban right now is doing, I think they are looking for very high profile, high level people. That's who they're looking to arrest. I don't think that right now they're really going after anybody who, you know, had like, you know, sold food on an American base or something like that. They're looking for Afghan army generals. Um, they're looking for government officials and things like that. So those are the types of people in those situations. Those are the ones who we are able to, um, escort and extract out of the country using um, a, a, a variety of, of, of means and like undercover rat lines. Um, so that's our work there. But, you know, it's 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 a it's a drop in the bucket of what needs to be done there. And I think that the the bigger the bigger issue and the bigger repercussion, I think that we're uh, seeing now, but we're going to see a lot more of in the future was the strategic value of of Afghanistan. Um, you know, if you look at if you look at history, um, so many armies, you know, most notably Alexander the Great, you know, had to go through Afghanistan to uh, to to basically get to Asia, and it's a rough place. It is a it is a it is a, it is a tough place to operate. But the fact that we invested so much money into having bases there, um, I think we could have, and I know we could have uh, kept, you know, maybe Bagram and one or two smaller bases, and we could have maintained that strategic location in perpetuity, just like after World War II, you know, we've still got bases on Okinawa. We've still got multiple bases in Germany. 
Um, be, and, we, and we're there, and that's, you know, that, uh, World War II was, you know, 60, 70 years ago. It was a long time ago, actually. Yeah, 60, 70, 80 years ago. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still have bases there because it's it helps us to stabilize those regions and prevent the next war. So the fact that we weren't willing to just keep one or two bases in Afghanistan, which is a hotbed for terrorism, is a terrorist breeding ground where you still have, obviously, the Taliban. You've got ISIS-K. You've got Al-Qaeda uh, sympathizers there and whatever other version of, of terrorists, of Islamic terrorists that you, that, that you can imagine, they're all going to be back in there. And, but more importantly than that, I think that we're going to see the Russians in there or the Chinese, probably the Chinese would be my guess. The Chinese are going to go back there. They're going to open up their mines in the mountains again. Uh, so that'll start feeding the Chinese economy. And not to mention the the royalties or however that'll work that they'll pay to the Taliban will start providing billions of dollars of um, uh, passive income to, uh, to to the Taliban every single year. Uh, not to mention the drug trade and the poppy fields and all that kind of stuff. And then I I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese just went and like helped uh, maybe manned uh, Bagram Air Base. I think they're definitely going to bring in a bunch of anti air defenses to make sure we can never ever ever go back into that country. And I think we just we just handed over um, not just a country, not just a base, but a strategic um, regional. We, we just lost control of an entire region. The ability to strike at these regions, you know, I know our current the current administration is saying that we still have over the horizon capabilities. Well, sure, we can we can launch a drone that'll fly for eleven hours or however long, strike a target and fly back. But that only gives it a small amount of time to actually be over the target to try to get actual information. That's one. So our 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 air assets are not able to be overhead long enough to really strike these places with accuracy. That's one. But more importantly, the second point is that we no longer have human intelligence. We no longer have people on the ground that we can talk to that can confirm the information. And we saw that with the drone strike uh, right outside Kabul Airport that killed uh, killed a family that had worked with, it was like interpreters that had worked with NGOs and killed a whole bunch of kids. And you're like, wait, who gave us that intel? Who gave us that intel? The only people who we still have on the ground out there, you know, any of our allies, right? They're rushing toward the airport. So who are we talking to outside the airport? We're talking to the Taliban or ISIS. That's who we're talking to. So like that information we're getting from, it's not coming from, you know, vetted, sources who know what the heck they're talking about is coming from actual terrorist groups. Um, and that's, that's just my personal opinion. I don't know that for a fact, but looking at the situation, I would be willing to bet everything that that's, that that's what happened. We got information from the bad guys and they told us who to strike. So the, the, the bigger point here is, you know, elections have consequences. And I think one of the, one of the most interesting things when you look at the, when you look at the American government system, right, we have tons of checks and balances, right? We've got, um, the three different branches of government. And then within the three different branches of government, we've got all the different levels of courts. And then we've got all the different levels of the, of, of Congress. And then we've got all these, all these different people vying for power just to make the most simple decision. Right? Well, the president doesn't answer to Congress for his foreign policy. Like, think about that. Like you are allowed to do make these besides like declaring war, you are allowed to make these huge sweeping decisions with zero oversight, zero checks and balances. And I think that, you know, I, I'm not really sure what the solution is, but I almost think that, you know, U.S. foreign policy at this point should also start, um, should start, should start being under Congress. I think that's just kind of my, that's kind of my opinion at this point, because like, who the heck are you? You're one dude sitting in an office 
making a decision that's going to completely destroy and every it's going to completely destabilize an entire region. Um, it's going to cause a lot of small wars. Thousands of people are already dead because of it. Hundreds of thousands over the course of the next probably 10, 15 years easily, you know, and that, and that sets up our, our enemies to attack us more and to take more space. And, uh, you know, so all these different reasons, right? Everybody knows that that's a horrible decision. It was a horrible decision to pull out of Afghanistan. Everybody knows this, right? But yet you're still able to do it. You know, that, that to me is just, that to me is just really, really bizarre. And I think that that's a huge flaw in our, um, in our, in our governmental system. I think that, you know, the, you know, major foreign policy issues like that should have to get some sort of approval from Congress because, um, you know, you have one guy playing God and it's, it's like Rome, right? One guy is playing God. He's the emperor and just causes all these problems. Uh, just cause again, one guy, um, you know, makes, makes a bad decision. So, um, yeah, I, obviously I'm not, uh, not too happy about the Afghanistan decision. I think we should have stayed. I think we should have kept a small footprint there. Just keep Bagram, um, keep a, uh, you know, keep a special operations task force there, keep some attack helicopters and a couple AC-130 gunships and making sure that those guys make sure that entire region is secured for, for, a, for a very small investment. We could have secured that entire region. Yeah, we have troops literally all over the globe in more countries than people realize until they actually look into it. But I do not think that history is going to be very kind to Joe Biden. And I think Joe Biden is obsessed with how history is going to view him and view his presidency. That's why he's trying to force through all these enormous bills, trying to fundamentally change what the United States of America is. But I think when we look back, because that's the one thing that's hard to do is when you're sitting in the middle of the news cycle, it's hard to kind of hover over the news cycle for a little bit and be like, what are things going to look like three months from now, you know, three years from now, 30 years from now. And I think when we look out, you know, decades from now, we're going to look at the fact that we screwed all of our allies the people that literally risked their lives and limbs and their families' lives and limbs in order to just help us to just point at where the bad guy was or to be an interpreter for us or to be an informant or whatever. When you screw all those people over and the ones that have survived, they're going to remember those things and they're going to mm -hmm. tell their children about those things and they're going to tell their nieces and nephews about those things and their grandchildren about those things. And the that rest of the world is watching it happen. They're, they're watching it happen and it's like you can't trust the Americans. But I think the strategic blunder of giving up Bagram, you're absolutely right because Bagram was so close to to Iran, to Russia, to China, to all these areas that are incredibly important to what we're trying to do as we move forward. And again, you can get into all the conspiracy theories like maybe this was a plan from the beginning. Maybe Joe Biden just thought that, you know, it would get, you know, swallowed up by the news cycle because here's the other thing that we're going to see by next November, Ephraim. No one's going to be talking about Afghanistan. Next right. November, when we're doing midterms, no one's yeah. talking about that. You know who's going to be on everybody's minds? Trump, because Trump's already said he's not going to announce whether he's running in 2024 until after the midterms. But the mm -hmm. narrative will be, I promise you, it's going to be that. Remember, I said that is you don't want to give him how the House you don't want to give him the Congress, right? Because let's say he does run in 2024 and the, the orange racist could get back in the White House. You don't want to give him the Senate and the House, do you? That's going to be the narrative. It's not going to be about the blunders that happened with Afghanistan. It's not going to be about the price of gas. It's not going to be about any of those other things. It's going to be about all these other nefarious things that they can go on. But I did have one other quick question on Afghanistan before we move yeah. on to some other stuff. And as a quick aside, guys, when you give money to organizations like Stronghold Rescue and Relief, you know, legit organizations, the, the, it's in the show notes here. This is the type of stuff that you're going to get. You're going to get people that are literally trying to get people out that are on the ground, that are that are suffering and at the hands of these horrible people. That's what organizations like this are about. So we highly suggest that you go and support them. But 
the thing that I'm hearing a lot about, because I still follow Holly McKay and the stuff that she's saying, you know, I listen to her podcast and read her stuff every week to kind of uh, figure out what's going on over there. The sense I'm getting from, from her stuff and from some other reporting is that there could be an impending starvation crisis going on in Afghanistan. That mm-hmm. the, the issues with not, not only supply lines, but the, the funding coming in through the government, which right now the Taliban runs the government. That's part of the reason why I think they're not just chopping people's heads off left and right is because they want some substantiation by the international community to continue mm-hmm. to give them money. You know, other mm-hmm. countries, not just China, not just Russia eventually, you know, but is, is there truth to that from what you're, what you're hearing? Because it makes sense that potentially over the winter, there could be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Afghanistans that are, or Afghanis that are going to be, you know, potentially starving to death or at least having tr- crazy amounts of malnut- malnutrition. Is that what you're seeing or hearing on the ground there? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm hearing. Um, you know, we're about to go into it's it's already winter time, and you know, in Afghanistan, a lot of people think of it as desert. Well, in reality, Afghanistan's a very very cold country. Um, I think it's like average height is like uh, it's it's average altitude above sea level. I think it's like five thousand or six thousand feet. It's it's a really really high um, city. It's sort of like um, like Denver, Colorado right on the edge of the mountains there. So it's extremely cold during the winter time. Everything shuts down. And yeah, so now you have now you have a, a government. So that's the interesting thing about the uh, about the Taliban to understand as well is the Taliban, they're not interested in world domination. Uh, the Taliban, like they might support organizations who are into that, but the Taliban themselves, they just want to control Afghanistan. They are a basically a political party that wants to control and govern Afghanistan as, you know, under Sharia law as an Islamic uh, emirate. Um, so they are trying to govern. They just want, they want to get that stuff up and running. So I, they absolutely do want help from the international community on, on all these different things that what you're saying, what you're talking about as far as the starvation and, um, and there's, you know, um, I'm good friends with Holly as well. And she was telling me about the, the, these, uh, awards where like there's orphan children and they're just starving to death because they ha- they literally do not have enough food to keep these newborn infants alive and hundreds of them. It's not like it's one or two, it's hundreds of them. It's a, it's a massive, massive issue. Um, yeah, I think that that is going to be a problem. The, the other issue that's, that's going on there too. So obviously we're, a, we're a, a nonprofit, you know, uh, humanitarian organization. So, uh, we were actually going to try to help, you know, individual extreme cases as much as we could. And um, I was actually um, trying to send money to some folks who were there in, in, in Afghanistan through through Western Union, relatively small amounts of money, um, and they couldn't pick anything up. So they would go to the Western Union, they would try to pick up, um, you know, again, relatively small amounts of money, and they weren't able to pick it up because there's no cash on hand. So even if you did have the cash, you know, there's not necessarily a place where you can go and buy we can go and buy food. So it's a situation where you literally have NGOs um, that are willing to help to one level or another. Um, and they're not able to, there's, there's absolutely nothing that you can do. So this, this is something that I'm, um, am looking at uh, very closely and I'm watching and we're still trying to figure out, you know, if there's ways that we can help, you know, individual families. Again, we're, we're a medium sized organization, so we can have a huge, uh, impact, um, in, in small communities. Um, but you know, we're not, uh, we're not UNICEF or USAID or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's horrific. And I think that that's one of the things people don't really look at. They, they, they're, they're only looking, people only look at the sort of flashy, crazy ISIS style videos where they're burning people alive and things like that. Right. That's, that's what they focus on. And that's, that's sort of the, the thing that we, 
our attention is drawn to, right? But the reality is most of the death and most of the carnage that's going to happen is going to be coming from starvation. It's same thing as like Venezuela, right? You don't see videos of beheadings coming out of Venezuela all the time. Um, but I think it was a year or two ago, I was I was talking with, with a journalist and I was like, listen, what's going on in Venezuela is a genocide. It's a genocide of children because they these kids are starving. They're dying from malnutrition, from very simple, uh, easily treatable, easily preventable diseases. Kids have like worms in their stomach and there's all these different issues um, that can be that can be their life can be saved by a simple five dollar medicine, not even five dollars, like a two dollar medicine, a two dollar dose of medicine can kill these worms, can kill these bacteria and, the, and these different and these different things that are killing people on mass, but nobody hears those numbers, nobody sees those numbers. But in reality, poor governance um, is another form of genocide. And I think that you are absolutely correct. We are going to see that happening in Afghanistan, and how much of that will be reported, you know, is difficult to uh, is is difficult to know because again, they don't have a free press, and there's not a lot of journalists on the ground there. Yeah, part of the reason why I've been following Holly McKay and the reporting she's doing is just to remind myself, uh, to remind myself of how I felt when things were falling apart and seeing the the video from people at the airport and the people holding on to the planes and the people falling from the wheels and all those different things. Because as Americans, we love to forget these horrible things. We love to forget how we felt and what it made us feel like in those moments. And I just don't want us to get there. Uh, mm-hmm. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because you're intimately involved in kind of what's going on, is the hostage situation over in Haiti. So mm-hmm. over a month ago, 17 Christians, uh, Christian missionaries rather, were kidnapped in Haiti. And then we didn't hear anything else, right? Every (laughs) now and then on Twitter, I'll be scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. It'll be something about, you know, some football game, something about something uh, happening in politics. Oh yeah, here the Christian missionaries are still not, have not been found yet. And so give us an update as to kind of what's going on. And as I understand it, I don't know how much you can talk about. I think you were just there. Uh, I think you're, you're kind of in the situation of trying to help these people help kind of figure out where they're at. My thing sitting here again, not knowing much about how these things work and knowing how you work is, would it be that hard for Joe Biden to send a, a group of used to be used a group of seals or different spec ops guys into Haiti to find these people? Is that not the way that people do these things anymore? Just kind of give us an update on the entire situation because my listeners have asked me about it and I've got nothing to tell them. So mm-hmm. help me out. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, First off, I want to stay state uh, state up front. Uh, we are not I, myself personally, and, and my guys on my team. We are not uh, at all intentionally, and we are intentionally avoiding getting involved in any way, shape, or form with the hostage situation. Um, our people, we are in contact with the uh, U.S. personnel on the ground who are the, the, the proper authorities who are who are dealing with this. I want to be I want to be extremely clear up front. By no means are we running around down there trying to get involved in that situation at all. It's simply that is that is a U.S. foreign policy decision, and that's not something that we're able to affect. Um, if we were, you know, uh, asked for help or something like that, we would of course do everything we could to help get these Americans home. Um, but to what extent we have been ha- asked to help or not help. Um, I, I don't want to get into those details at all, um, but I'm going to be very clear up front. Like we are not in any way, shape or form, like sort of leading that charge to try to, to try to find them. That's, that's not what we do. That's, that's for the U S government. Um, so with that being said, so Haiti, man, Haiti is a, uh, Haiti's a rough place. Haiti's a really, really rough place. I just got back uh, a few days ago from there. Uh, my team and I, we were down there. So uh, really what, what's going on right now is Haiti is, um, a term we would use uh, is a, it's a failed state, right? The government no longer properly functions. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, 
the the biggest just sort of surface level issue um, that is causing the, the government to no longer be effective and the police to no longer be effective um, is basically there's a series of gangs. Um, there's dozens and dozens of gangs in Haiti, but there are several very, very large ones. The The biggest gang that's down there in Haiti is a gang that's called G9. And G9 stands for, the nine stands for nine different gangs, different smaller gangs who all united into one um into one big gang under a guy um, who calls himself Barbecue. That's like his. That's like his gang leader name. Um, and if you if you look up Barbecue, uh, his last name is uh, Cherizier. So you can you can just like uh, you can easily Google him and find more information about him and like what he's got going on. But basically, this guy Barbecue, um, he controls and G Nine. They control the ports of Haiti. So uh, when you go to port, when you go to Haiti and you look at uh, the city of Port-au-Prince, um, there's, you know, uh, Haiti's obviously an island nation. So they're, they're all of their, all of their resources have to be imported at the moment. They have other resources that they can take advantage of, um, but they don't have the infrastructure to do that yet because the situation is unstable. So they have to get everything from outside of the country. Well, Everything coming from outside the country has to go to the one deep water port, the primary deep water port, which is in Port-au-Prince and some of the other surrounding areas. There are several ports there. Um, so this gang controls that area. And basically what they've done is they control, they now control the flow of oil and fuel into the country. And so what this gang has done is they've choked it off um, and they only allow what fuel they want to go through to, to go through. And so what they're what they're what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the different political leaders in the Haitian government. The gang is trying to get them to resign and trying to get them to to give up and trying to turn the people against the government. And so what the gang is doing is they're saying, listen, if this guy just resigns, we'll let the we'll let the oil through like we'll like everything will be great if you just if you just, you know, if, if these. Uh, elected officials just resign, right? So they're trying to basically prop themselves up as the government. Um, and there's been several different um, things that that, this, that these gangs have done to sort of uh, pretend like they are the government. For example, there was a, a situation a couple weeks ago where the president, or excuse me, the, the prime minister of Haiti was going to go lay a wreath. That's like the, the, the leader of Haiti goes and lays this wreath for some sort of uh, memorial um, a national memorial thing. Well, the gangs showed up because they knew that, that the prime minister was going to be there and they just started shooting. And so the prime minister and everybody was evacuated. And so then, well, guess who shows up an hour later? Barbecue. Barbecue shows up in a nice suit and tie and he lays the wreath, which is supposed to be the job of the national leader. So they're doing symbolic things like that to basically try to take the country over. So that's that's sort of the setting, and because of this, there's there's poverty and power outages, and it's um, it's a disaster. It's a really really rough. It's a really really rough place to be. Um, so that's that's sort of the general setting. Now, one of the now now one of the the other situations, right? So we'll talk about the we'll talk about these hostages. So I was actually down in Haiti a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, and uh, right after. Um, I, I got on a plane, I came back here and uh, got the news, oh, hey, 17 Americans, uh, you know, 16 Americans and a Canadian were taken hostage. Um, so they were taken hostage by a group, uh, by a gang called the 400 Mowozo. Um, and there's different, there's different translations for the word Mowozo. It's like anything from like losers to like vagabonds to like, uh, you know, crazy guys. There's, there's, there's several different uh, 
translations for it, but it's basically the 400 crazy guys, right? Well, they, in reality, they don't actually have 400. Uh, I think they have maybe 150 to 200 guys that are actually in this gang. So what happened was there was a group from Christian Aid Ministries, CAM for short, um, who are uh, mostly Mennonites. Um, I believe, actually believe that they're all Mennonites. Um, and they were, uh, they visited an orphanage, uh, of, of some sort, um, there in, in Haiti on the outskirts of the town, not in Port-au-Prince itself, but sort of outside. And then this gang, you know, just basically showed up, kidnapped them and they're demanding a million dollars per person. Now, when, when you look at this situation, you have basically, you have three, you have three things you can do. One is you just ignore it, right? Which isn't really much of an option. Two is you send in a rescue mission to go kill all the bad guys and rescue the hostages, right? Which is what we all want to have happen. Um, but it's not that simple. It's a, it's a complicated place. And I can get into some of those details here in a second. Um, but the third option is to pay the ransom. So um, let's talk about rent paying ransom for a second. Uh, as a general rule, you never, never want to pay. You never, ever, ever want to pay the ransom to get somebody back. Now this is cold hearted and it sucks. And especially if you're a family member of the person who has been kidnapped, you're like, Hey, just pay the ransom and get them back. Right. The, the issue though, is as soon as you pay a ransom, you now have put a price tag on the head of everybody else who is around there. So if you pay a million dollars for each one of these Americans, you have now just told all the gangs that every single white person and European person who is there is now worth a million dollars. And you're talking, you know, about people who make basically nothing. They live in an abject poverty, right? So I can, I can go kidnap that guy and make a million dollars, or I can not kidnap that guy and live in squalor, right? Well, you're probably going to go kid. You're probably going to go do the kidnapping. Um, the problem is that because Haiti is such a failed state, um, besides the immorality and danger of kidnapping people, right? looking at it on a national level, the the people who run the hospitals, it's all NGOs. It's all people from, you know, Doctors Without Borders and other NGOs that are similar. They're the doctors who who run who run the hospitals. They're the ones who um, you know, provide education and all these and all these other things, all this all the sort of government infrastructure things that we have here in America. Think about that everything that the federal government does here in America. Um, whether it's education and hospitals and roads and all that other stuff, it's private nonprofit organizations that pretty much do everything in Haiti because it's such a disaster. Um, so as soon as you start kidnapping people like this, the, 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 as soon as you start kidnapping foreigners, the problem is, well, now your doctors are leaving and now your, now your school teachers are leaving and everybody else who's sort of keeping this place running is now leaving. And, you know, so that just exacerbates the problem. It makes things so much worse and people are more desperate and, you know, so it's this vicious circle. Um, so let's talk about rescue. Um, the, the, the situation with, with a rescue, um, it's sort of like that show, the first 48, right? Uh, ideally, if you can locate somebody within the first 48 hours, that's really the, that's the sweet time to, 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 to attack and to try to get somebody back. Right. Um, and the same thing in the tactical world, it's, it's, you want to try to get them as quickly as possible. As soon as you can get the information, don't let be, because as time goes on, a, the, um, the hostage takers start getting more desperate. The, um, hostages start dealing with health issues. And also the hostage takers then have time to kind of look at their situation, look at their tactical situation and maybe start spreading people out. 
maybe start, you know, really thinking about what they're doing and making it as difficult as, as possible to find the hostages. And I think that we missed that golden opportunity, the, the, the golden window right at the beginning to, to go in and make something happen. Um, I think we've lost that. It's, I think we lost that weeks ago. So now what's going on is the hostage takers, without a doubt, they're in contact probably with the FBI or some some variation, uh, some, some variation or, or department within the FBI or some State Department official. I don't know. Uh, but they're almost guaranteed they're having some sort of a dialogue where they're talking with these, uh, where they're talking and trying to negotiate a price and all that kind of stuff. Um, so... The, the issue, though, is a lot of these hostages now, after several days or after several weeks, excuse me, um, they their, their health situation, I promise you, is deteriorating really, really bad. So uh, they're they're not going to have, you know, any kind of proper medical care. They're probably going to be drinking dirty or even even if it's, you know, air quotes, filtered water. Um, Americans and Westerners like our, our gut biome cannot handle even local filtered water like you need bottled water period, done, end of story. Like you don't drink the regular water there because you can't physically handle it. So the hostages right now, they're definitely in a situation where um, their health is deteriorating. They probably are dehydrated uh, from vomiting, diarrhea. They're probably not getting nearly enough food. Um, and so their health situation is deteriorating. I know that's, I know at least one of the, there was like an eight month old kid who's probably, you know, nine months now. Um, you know, that's, that's a really, really rough situation. And you're dealing with one of the worst gangs in the world. Um, so without a doubt, the women are being abused, all kinds of just horrible, horrible stuff. And they've probably split the group up into multiple places around the countries, most likely what's happened at this point. So in order to make a rescue happen is, you know, ideally you want to find, you want to be able to locate all of those locations, locate where all the hostages are and try to get them all out, all out at the same time. Um, that's going to be extremely difficult to do if you're not willing to take any casualties. Uh, if you're not willing, if you, if you, if you're, if you're, if your criteria for launching the mission is, Hey, we are, you know, we are 75% certain that we can get 100% of these, uh, 100% of the hostages out with no casualties. Um, you know, if that's your criteria to go to, to get the green light for the mission, it's probably not going to happen, um, at this point because it's, there's just no way to be that certain. Um, and so I guarantee you what one thing I can guarantee you is that JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, the generals and the admirals from, you know, uh, SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force and all their supporting units and the 160th and all the different air assets and everything that we have, I guarantee you uh, they either know exactly where or are very close to finding exactly where all of these hostages are. And they already have a plan in place. I guarantee you the president's already been briefed on it. And I, I would guarantee you that it's just a matter of sort of a thumbs up or thumbs down at this point coming from the president. Now, keep in mind, our current president, uh, he is the only one, <laughs> he is the only one uh, who spoke up and didn't want the bin Laden raid to happen. Like, think about that. Like, wrap your brain around that for a second if you're listening to this. Like, the only guy who said, no, let's not go kill bin Laden, who, who, who advised against doing that raid, which it, it was a courageous decision on uh, uh, Barack Obama's uh, uh, part to to make that decision to go after bin Laden because you're, you're going into a sovereign nation and, you know, it's going to be an international incident if you're wrong. They weren't a thousand percent sure that bin Laden was there. So it was a courageous decision. But even Obama and Hillary Clinton and all of their in that entire cabinet, they were like, hell yeah, let's go kill bin Laden. Right. 
The only person who was like, no, let's not do that was the person who is now the president of the United States and who is now in a position to make, to give the green light or the red light to any kind of mission that would happen down there. Um, and so whether it's cowardice or maybe they don't have the information they need, I, I, I don't really know. Um, but kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier at the beginning of this conversation, you know, if you look at the, if, if, if you're thinking like a politician, especially a leftist politician, um, what would it look like if you send a bunch of predominantly white commandos down into Haiti to kill a whole bunch of black people and save the white people and get them home, right? Because if you go in there, all you're going to be doing, there's, you're only going to be fighting black people, right? Um, and so like, what, what's that going to look like? you know, politically. Right. So that's might be what's going on in the, in, in, in you know, on the, on the political part of, of, of the president's brain. I, I don't know, but you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to, you know, look at and consider when it, when it comes, when it comes to this stuff. But I think honestly, the decision should have been made a while ago to launch a mission. Um, one other thing I'll, I will say, as far as a rescue mission that does make it a little bit more complicated uh, this mission to go get the hostages, it's 17 people. Like that is a lot of people. Uh, you have to figure, you know, at least half of these people are not going to be able to pretend you need to be prepared to move at least half of these people with stretchers and, you know, being able to drag them out of there because they're might, might be sick. They might not be able to move on their own. Um, and you, that takes a lot of space in a helicopter to get that. So that's a minimum you you need like a Chinook helicopter to, to land there. Right. Um, also, if you're hitting multiple places, um, this would not be a simple, a relatively simple Bin Laden style raid, right? If you watch the movie Zero Dark Thirty, they sent in a couple of helicopters. Yes, they had the 75th Ranger Regiment, you know, holding, um, you know, holding out um, in case they needed to bring in reinforcements. Um, but it was a relatively simple thing. Two helicopters land, you go inside, you kill Bin Laden, you grab his body, you leave, right? Relatively simple. Um, but with this, it's much more complicated. And the area where the hostages are at, you would basically have to send in the entire 75th Ranger Regiment and, you know, multiple strike teams. You'd have to have a Delta Force strike team, a Dev Group strike team to hit the multiple locations of where these guys are at and then basically have the entire 75th Ranger Regiment um, there to support and hold off the uh, the, the hundreds of, of, of gang members who are, who are in the area. So it would be a much larger operation that would probably take several days. It wouldn't be just a simple in and out in a couple of hours uh, type of mission. Um, if you know that, that's just sort of me sort of playing armchair, uh, armchair general, um, if you will, <laughs> kind of looking at the situation. I appreciate you getting into all the details in terms of that. And to be honest with you, I hadn't even thought about the fact that Joe Biden is the one that could potentially give the thumbs up on this mission because it's been well documented at this point that he's been wrong about basically every foreign policy issue possible. And that was, you know, pretty, pretty well known. And then at this point, you know, we have a guy that th this is a more complicated situation than the Bin Laden raid. And that was a raid that he was the only one that was like, no, I don't think we should do that. And then whatever else he did, they probably crapped his pants. But uh, I guess the just... To put a bow on this before we move on to Burma, I do want to talk about Burma before we get out of here. Mm -hmm. um, if you had to give us a percentage chance right now that these people are going to come back, that we're going to get our 17 Christian missionaries back, like, and I know that we're, this might be a foolish thing to even ask you, and you can tell me so, you can tell me to stick it, but like, what do you, what do you think the chances are now that this is being drawn out even further? What, like, what do you, how do you handicap it at this point? Um, Man, that's, that's a really, really good question. And that's something I've actually, it's, it's ironic that you asked me that because I've actually been sort of, you know, toying around with that same exact thought in my own head. And the honest answer is, I don't know. 
Um, the the so, some of the factors you kind of have to look at here. Um, a is okay a rescue mission are they going to launch a rescue mission just look looking at the political factors but then also the tactical factors which i we could do it we wouldn't be able to get 100 percent of the hostages we might be able to get half of them or you know hopefully 75 percent of them you know you're going to lose people like they're going to be shot it's going to be violent and you're not going to be able to get all of them right the fact the the idea that we would actually or that that the president would would authorize that kind of a decision i don't see that happening i think that is basically a one percent chance of that happening um, as far as paying off the hostages or uh, paying off the hostage takers to get the hostages back, um, I think the chances of that are a lot higher. Um, they're probably negotiating. They're probably trying to get a lower number. They're probably trying to get everybody back for a, a smaller amount of money. But, um, I, you know, I wouldn't even begin to speculate on like what, what that negotiation process even looks like. You know, do they even have proof of life for all the hostages? Did, you know, like all, all that kind of stuff. I, I personally, if, if I had, if I just had to bet, I think we'll probably go with the first option that I'd mentioned earlier of the three options. They'll probably just at kind of over time, they'll probably just kind of ignore it. Um, we have, look about, look at, look at all this, look at all the people that we have in, in uh, Kabul and all around Afghanistan. And we've basically given the middle finger to that doesn't include all of the people who fled Afghanistan, for example, and have gotten into Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Pakistan and have maybe moved into other countries as well. And I can tell you person from, from personal knowledge from people who are on the ground uh, that there's no support for those people. Right. So I think the foreign policy at this point is just going to be to kind of ignore it and pretend like it's not happening. I think that's why we're not seeing it in the news um, is because they're just kind of not talking about it. And I, again, I, I hope, I hope, I truly hope and pray that I'm wrong. I hope that I wake up, you know, tomorrow morning and find out, Hey, you know, they got the hostages out and I hope I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that I am. I think that, I think that the hostages um, until, until we have a, until we have a new president, I think that they're kind of, uh, kind of screwed. Uh, the only other last little caveat I'll throw out there is maybe, and again, I'm just hoping, you know, maybe they're waiting for a, the correct, the correct like political timing. Maybe you know, uh, the night prior to Thanksgiving, the mission happens. You know what I mean? So everybody wakes up in the morning on Thanksgiving, and they can talk about this rescue mission that happened. And you know, maybe they're doing that for to time it politically or something. I don't know. Um, I, that's, you know, the, the eternal optimist part of my brain is going like, well, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe they're, maybe they're just waiting for the right political moment. So it can be a great, you know, time for the country to come together or something. But, um, yeah, long story short, I don't think the, uh, I don't think they have much of a chance at this point. Well, that, that's horrible to hear. And, and I've thought about the same thing as well as you were describing the situation. Like maybe they're waiting for, you know, a political football that they can easily catch and run across, across the goal line. Mm -hmm. But at this point, as ridiculous as it sounds, I don't think the majority of the American population knows that 17 missionaries have been kidnapped in Haiti. I yeah. mean, this is kind of a fringe thing, even in Christian communities. I don't think a whole lot of people know that that's happening because the news cycle is so crazy because the Biden administration is so inept, but we're not going to, we could spend the rest of the day talking about that. But before we let you go, cause I know we got to wrap up here soon. I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in Burma right now. We talked about that a little bit on the last podcast. That's obviously something that you're doing uh, with stronghold rescue and relief. You're, you're trying to, you know, help people on the ground there. So just give us a little uh, primer on kind of what's going on there and what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, sorry. Right before I answer that question, I there was one little thing I needed to mention about the the missionaries. So, um, and this I, I wouldn't be doing it justice. So, uh, the Christian Aid Ministries—they're really, really good people. Um, when I when I was in 2017, when when I was shot during the rescue mission, 
to get that little girl out. Um, you know, I was taken back. I was driven back to a, a bombed out mosque, which was the first AIDS, which was the sort of the, the field aid station. Well, the guy who drove the ambulance, this armored ambulance, you know, 150 feet away from ISIS guys, you know, dragging me out of there, uh, driving me out of there, uh, was somebody from CAM, from somebody from Christian Aid Ministries, a guy named Daryl. Um, and so I'm extremely grateful to him. And then also, too, when I got back to this bombed out mosque, which was a uh, a uh, makeshift sort of field hospital, uh, one of the ladies who helped wrap and bandage my leg, um, her name was Rhonda. And she is also from Christian Aid Ministries. So these are Mennonite, these are Mennonite pacifists who refuse to carry weapons. And normally I would kind of turn my nose up at that. But these people were out there in true danger, not armed, uh, because they truly believed in helping other people and in helping uh, you know, uh, people in dangerous places. So I just have to give them a shout out. Like I truly appreciate them and, um, I'm grateful for the medical treatment they gave me. Uh, and also, uh, happy ending to that story. Daryl, the ambulance driver and Rhonda, the nurse, they got married. So that's okay. Hey, the, the ministries. Um, so thank you to them. Um, the, so Burma, uh, so basically what's going on in Burma right now is the central government is, is basically committing genocide against the ethnic minorities. Um, the, the government of Burma is the military. So imagine if, uh, an American general, uh, stood up and said, I am now, I am, you know, I am the captain now, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, Hey, I am, I am now the, the president of the United States. And he used the military to, uh, to basically enslave the American population. And then the American military started going after any ethnic minority that they didn't like, right? They started going after the native Americans. They started going after, you know, uh, Latinos or they started going after white people or whatever, you know, they started targeting people because of their ethnic and religious beliefs. That's what's going on in Burma. The military controls the country and they're going after everybody that they don't like, which is primarily ethnically driven as opposed to uh, religious re religion driven. Um, so uh, there's basically two seasons in Burma. Uh, there's the rainy season, like monsoon seasons, where there's these you know insane amounts of, of, of rain happen. It's usually from the end of May up until the end of October um, and sometimes into November. And so, and then the rest of the years, they call it the dry season. And usually in December, January timeframe, um, once all the dirt roads have sort of hardened in the sun and uh, passages through, um, you know, pass, uh, roads and passages through the mountains and stuff are, are clear, that's when the fighting kicks off because the Burma army then launches attacks to, uh, to these different uh, tribal areas um, where they have to get through on roads. So they'll go in, they'll rape and murder everybody. If you've watched the movie um, uh, Rambo 4, um, with Sylvester Stallone, uh, that takes place in Burma and, you know, it's, it's sort of a, it's a Hollywoodized, but it's fairly accurate as far as the, the atrocities and such that they will, that they will commit against the, the different ethnic minorities. So fighting season is about to kick off. Um, and there's already fighting that's been going on all summer. Um, and it's still going on and we have rescue teams, um, of locals that we've trained up to uh, and that, we, that we mentor to help them so, so they can basically protect their own people even when we're not there. So we send in guys who are ex-seals and rangers and such, and we teach them how to protect their families, how to conduct evacuations, how to um, you know get people out. Um, and so what, what, what we'll be doing over the next uh, you know six, seven months until 
the end of May is we're going to be bringing in a lot of emergency food and medical rations uh, because what happens is these people who live in, uh, you know, who live in bamboo huts, they, the, these villages will get attacked. So people will run into the jungle, run into the mountains to try to hide and they'll, they'll just take whatever they can carry on their back and they'll run into the jungle um, to get away from the Burma army who's shooting mortars at them, who sends in troops on the ground to kill them, who puts landmines in there. They, the, the Burma army will put landmines in villages that they've cleared. Um, even though they burned all the buildings down, it's very easy to rebuild them because they're just bamboo. Uh, they'll put landmines everywhere. So anybody who comes back and tries to uh, you know, rebuild the village, people are losing limbs and things like that. So we send in, again, ex-special ops guys uh, such as myself. I'll be there. Uh, and we basically help... Um, we, we help with medical with medical care, emergency food, and then we also help protect refugees and people who are running. Um, we um, another thing we also do is we're bringing in. We've actually already brought in uh, radios, like like handheld, like really high quality handheld radios and solar panels, and we're putting these radios in the uh, villages that are closest to the fighting. There's uh, about twenty different villages in one particular area that every single time fighting season kicks off, they have to run at some point. So what we've done is we've got, uh, we're basically building a, uh, a communications network there so that these villagers and the village leaders, and they can hop on the radio and they can call over to the next village over uh, and they can say, Hey, the Burma army's coming at us here. You know, don't go into this Valley or, Hey, you need to retreat to this area or, Hey, we're under attack. Which way should we go? You know, and then they can call and the other person's like, hey, we're under attack too, so don't come here, you know, that kind of thing. So they can coordinate their efforts. And this stuff will actively and has already actively uh, prevents rape, prevents genocide, it prevents murder, it prevents uh, death from starvation and from malnutrition and disease and all that kind of stuff. And so we have, like I said, we have teams that go in and uh, uh, help and we'll be continuing to do that. So that's sort of roughly the uh, the situation on the ground in Burma. But what's what's beautiful about it too is I know we've talked about a lot of uh, you know a lot of sort of deep, um, sort of rough rough topics, everything from Afghanistan to Burma to to Haiti, right? But what, what's beautiful uh, in in these dark areas and in these dark places is it's amazing to see. And my I am privileged in in my life to have always been part of a group, both during as the, as a seal and then afterwards. I've always been a part of a group of people who are willing to go in and are willing to lay down their lives to help their fellow man. And it's not always warriors. Sometimes it's an old lady who's willing to, uh, you know, carry something for, for somebody or was willing to carry a child over a mountain or what, whatever it might be. Um, I'm grateful that my life, that in my life, I have been able to see heroes of, of all shapes and sizes and colors um, from all different places, people who come together. And in the worst of times, they're like, you want to know what? We're going to stand up. We're going to do the right thing, no matter what it costs us. And I think that, and I want listeners who, you know, we've talked about all these problems here in America. It's like, you can be that hero. You can stand up. You can do the right thing. And your act of heroism might be um, just standing up for yourself when somebody when somebody calls you a racist and you're like, hey, like, no, absolutely not. Like, you don't get to say that to me. Like, don't you dare accuse me of, of being that. I'm not a Nazi. What are you talking about? You know, that might be the act of courage that you need to do. It might be to also to listen to somebody, right? As much as we don't want to listen <laughs> to people who have different points of view, another heroic thing you can do is like, listen, like, hey, why, why are you protesting? What are you so mad about? Um, clearly you're upset about something. Try to understand where they're coming from, even if they're wrong. 
understand where they're coming from. Just see what what their thought process is. And then at, at a minimum, you can understand how to engage with them. You can understand how to have that dialogue with them. And that's not going to work for everybody. But, you know, we have to we have to as a society uh, start being being heroes in our, in our in our own in our own lives and that's the only way that we're going to get our country back but and that's and i see people all over the world in much 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 worse circumstances you had said earlier hey this isn't the most divided we've ever been right we're not running around killing each other uh, and that's so true and i i go to places actively where that is happening and um and i can tell you that um you know we need to avoid that at all costs and we can we can avoid that by talking to each other by working together uh, i know it sounds all you know, fluffy and frilly and political, but no, it's true. It really, really is true. So, um, and it's your choice. You get to make the choice of whether, which side you want to be on. And I'm not talking about left or right. I'm talking about a listener or a talker, a doer or a complainer, right? Um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is just, you know, be involved, do what you can in your own life and in your own community to, uh, to make your world a better place. Well, I talked about this a few weeks ago. I did an episode called The Modern Bystander Effect, and I was talking about how this woman was raped on a train outside of Philadelphia for like 27 stops or something like that, and nobody interceded about this woman that was physically assaulted, uh, and people were taking video of it, uh, her in a train car or a subway car in New York City. And that's what we get to do, especially as Christians. That's the Imago Day. Someone has the image of God written on them right now, and it's being violated. And what are you going to do? Are you going to pull out your phone and video it, or are you going to intercede? But I just got to tell you, from every time we talk, I'm excited to talk to you, whether it's on the show or off the show, but I'm always mm-hmm. depressed after I'm like, dang it. Like the world's so crappy <laughs> and so ugly, but I'm glad yeah. there are, there are guys like uh, you and guys like you, the ones that you described and the people that are on your team that are there to push back darkness exactly where the source of the darkness is. But as of right now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, no, that is all, man. I really appreciate it. And if people want to you know, help support what we do at Stronghold Rescue and Relief, just go ahead, uh, just go over to strongholdrescue.org. And if you want to support, great. Uh, if not, you just want to kind of learn more about what we do or the different situations uh, that we're involved in, you know, uh, feel free to read up on it. Yeah, I highly recommend you guys do that. And you can also go to the website. It will be in the show notes to, to get hooked up to the newsletter to make sure you're up on everything that's going on with that organization. But Ephraim Matos, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the return appearance of Ephraim Matos on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness, specifically with content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I'll go over some of the links for you. I've got a link to the Stronghold Rescue and Relief website. That's where you can go to sign up for their newsletter. That's where you can go to donate to keep all of their amazing work going. I've also got a link to his book, City of Death. There's a couple of video links to some things that he's done overseas. And then also I've got a link to episode 197 of our podcast. That was Ephraim Matos's first appearance. And also, for those of you that are interested in those Stevenson knives, that link is here at the end of the podcast. And again, that phone number is 863-528-9633. Just make sure that you mention Undaunted Life to get 10% off your order. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. Check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness 
Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>